0: Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. This week on the podcast, we've got a special episode, guest hosted by Livewire co-founder and executive director, James Marley. James will be chatting with Matthew Kidman, the founder of Centennial Asset Management and formerly Chief Investment Officer at Wilson Asset Management. Matthew should be very familiar to regular viewers of Buy, Hold, Sell, as he hosts and moderates many of the shows. It's the first time we've really sat down and explored Matthew's investment philosophy. So if you've ever wondered about the man behind the quips, this is your opportunity. In this unabridged interview, we hear how Matthew got started as a business journalist. We hear about the early days at Wilson Asset Management, back when they still shared an office with a young Paradise Investment Management. And he shares a couple of current small cap ideas that are well and truly undiscovered. Finally, if you're loving the rules of investing, why not tell someone about it? Pick your favorite episode and send it to a friend, or just head on over to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. Either way, you're helping us to increase the profile of the show, and therefore, the quality of the guests that I can bring to you. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: So what was it like? How did you get started? Uh, do we start now
2: or? Carry on. Uh, So I was a, I'd studied economics law and I, in my, probably in my fourth year, I'd finished economics and I really enjoyed it. I was in my fourth year of law, did a summer clerkship with a, with a law firm in town. People were fine, but I just knew from that moment, couldn't be a lawyer. Didn't have the eye for detail. And so I thought, oh, well, what else am I going to do? Um, well, finish my degree, which was another year. So that was five years. Then I thought, oh, I won't go to the College of Law. But my parents said, I think you should, just in case. So I went to the College of Law. But in between, um, before I went to the College of Law, I went overseas backpacking by myself. And I was standing on a bus in Italy. I'd been 10 weeks in Europe. Um, back in those days, no smartphones. Um, just, you know, you had to buy newspapers. I was too poor to buy newspaper, English newspapers, because they were expensive in places like Italy and France. And I was leaning over, I was standing on a bus, standing up going somewhere in Rome. And I remember leaning over someone's shoulder, an English guy, he had a paper and I was reading it. And I thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be a journalist.
1: Had, you, uh, done much, miss, had miss, you done writing? Was that something?
2: No, I was a really bad writer. Um, my, my first job in journalism, believe it or not, was out of Campbelltown. So I was living near the city here. And it was an I bought a whole year ticket which was1300 dollars and it was like getting my first mortgage it was you know tied to that ticket for the whole year yeah. and I go to Campbelltown every day and my first editor after about three weeks said you can't write I can't believe you've done a law degree <laughs> and, and I for the next six weeks I had to sit next to her every day and she'd rewrite my copy and say this is how you so I had another English experience then so yeah, yeah couldn't write
1: and were you writing about business and companies at that stage, or was it something No, different? it was the
2: MacArthur Chronicle, so you got to write, there was three journalists and an editor, and you had to write the whole paper, so I'd do 30 articles in a week, came out once a week. I, being the only male on staff, they shoved me sport, mm-hmm. and anything businessy. they also gave me, but I'd never lost interest in economics, and, and my wife had started a small business, a, a, a retail, a $2 shop, and I'd worked there on weekends, and really enjoyed it, and I kind of got more and more interested in business, and I thought, maybe business journalism's where... Is probably the path of least resistance, and I've got, you know, with an economics law degree, I probably get into that chance, and I'd, I'm quite interested in business. So, just kept pestering, and eventually I got a job. I got three job offers in one week coming out of the early '90s recession. Spent a year out of Campbelltown. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the quickest ever student to get my shorthand because you had to do shorthand. The reason being is, is I was on the train for an hour and 40 minutes each way every day, and I practiced my shorthand. And in eight months, I was done. Mm. Um, so I I finished the cadetship and was graded, but they but they refused to give me the grading until twelve months. So I said right, and then all of a sudden I got three job offers. So the recession was lifting. Telegraph gave me a job offer, um, one of the AAP wire services, and I accepted both of them. And then the Herald gave me a job offer at the desk. So I had to go back to the other two and say I'm not taking the job. I'm going to go to the Herald. Yeah. So it was a flood. It was it was nice because for so long that you couldn't get jobs in that recession.
1: So what was it, um, you know, what are some of the memories that you've got from when you're working? Because you became a business editor.
2: Yeah, in the last year. So I was, I was at the Herald, started at Broadway and the old, um, with the printing presses underneath us. And then we moved to Darling Park um, where the printing presses were moved off site, and it became like a real office. You couldn't smell the ink anymore. It was a bit different. Um, what was it like when I first turned up? They said, here's a list of contacts. Uh, we want you to write the market column this afternoon. This guy over here will help you good luck (laughs) and I just remember I was supposed to go out with um, my then girlfriend now wife for dinner that night to celebrate first day and at about 7 at night I rang her and said don't bother I'm too tired I'm exhausted and I knew nothing I didn't know where the toilet was I didn't know who I was ringing where people worked. the guy who was supposed to help me didn't really help me Um, I didn't know how to file use the machine Um, I had no idea where they got their stories from and that lasted for about three months and eventually things started to click and, um, it was just trying at the deep end, but it, it was, it was, it was fun. It was hard, but it was fun. And most of the other journalists, the old person was really nice, but 90% of them kind of kept their distance to see how you go. So it was quite competitive, was it? Competitive, but also you just, you had to prove yourself. They weren't there to help you. Yeah. You had to show your colors and, um, it's a pretty good environment in the sense that, you know, sink or swim. But it was interesting, it was, it was at a time when The Herald, looking back, was at its absolute peak. John Alexander was the editor and publisher. The Saturday paper was, you know, probably 200 pages long. There were ads everywhere. Um, you know, we'd just come out of a recession, so they were hiring people again. And, you know, it was a good time. We used to run hard against the financial review. Um, the Australian didn't really compete. It was starting to put up its head, but so it was quite competitive. But in your own stable, which was interesting, mm. um, it was tough though because then after I got off the market round after about twelve months, um, they put me property editor, and I knew nothing about property, and tried to get off that. And my editor said, well, "Well, hire someone you can get off it." So I did that, went out and hired someone, and then they gave me a round, and I did media and telecommunications, and that was. That was an unusually large job for a young person because media was so important. And so I spent a couple of years writing about Murdoch's Packers, Izzy Asper who bought Channel 10 or controlled Channel 10, Kerry Stokes, and I met all those people. Um, well, the Packers wouldn't talk to you, they'd just swear at you. Um, and, you know, the Murdoch were polite, but they controlled the information flow and Stokes and Asper and these aspiring type of guys were quite amenable. They liked being in the press, so you'd interview them. It was interesting, but it was highly pressurized because uh, there was a guy at the Financial Review called Mark Furness, who was a gun, been around for years, and he used to beat me to stories. And I, I couldn't work out where he got his stories from. And I I'd go to bed at night, wake up in the middle of the night and I'd be thinking, oh, there'll be another stories broken short enough the next morning. And my editor just said, keep going, you'll get there. And then for about six months, I started to beat him. I don't know how it happened, but I started to beat him to a lot of stories and he retired I thought, oh, this is it. <laughs> And after about six months of being the only um, dog in town, the AFR hired a, a lady called Finola Burke, and within three months she was beating me, and I thought, my time's up. I've got to get another job. And that's, that's when they gave me investment, and I, I got off that round. So it was, t- it, was, it was very competitive. You felt ill if you saw someone else have a story and you knew straight away. If you had your own, you felt like, you know, the, the, the rooster and the pen you parade around. So every day you you're on edge.
1: Did you ever figure out what it took to get the first story? Was it just relationships? Big
2: on relationships. You also had to, it was a bit chicken and egg. If you could break some stories, if you got lucky enough, then the players in that industry would start ringing you. So I was lucky enough, I befriended a number of fund managers and that's probably the link between where I am today and then, that I started to talk to a lot of fund managers and they had information. That, that industry players had as well because they'd been in... Ta- and I could follow up and there was a couple of stories that I was able to get and then all of a sudden I had the guys from Foxtel, Australis, which was the old microwave pay TV group, um, Nine and Seven and Channel Nine and Seven and ringing me. And that's where it turned. Um, so you just, you had to find a way to prove to the industries you are in. Um, it was the same. I got to cover Telstra, the first flight of Telstra. My editor said, right, we've got four months to the day at least, I want an article every day on Telstra because <laughs> there's a lot of readers out there who will own shares. So that was interesting. Got to know all, a whole bunch of players around the telco industry and how, in that one, how the, how the corporate departments of a lot of the big merchant banks worked as well because you know, it, it was a big ticket item for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You sort of alluded to it there. Um, your first role as investor was with Jeff. Yeah. Why did do you think Jeff asked you to join his team as an investor, given that you're a journalist?
2: I, yeah, I don't think he wanted to. Uh, I mean, it wasn't the natural. And, I, and I, I'd i never owned a share. Uh, parents never owned a share. Um, I, I'd, I'd looked at the share market through the lens of a journalist for four years, and it was intriguing. So I, I was excited by it. But I'd never been an investor. I just didn't have the excess capital. Now, it was all about just survival when you're at uni and then hand to mouth. You know, you're paying rent in Sydney. And so on and buying train tickets out to your first job yeah and, and th- that job that first job paid me sixteen thousand seven hundred dollars a year and thirteen hundred dollars on the <laughs> train ticket up front so i mean that i moved on from there obviously and, and was on an okay wage and but tended to work weekends my wife had the shop worked at a cinema that was all funny had plenty of energy but i'd never done anything but jeff wanted to write a book and i got to know jeff um as a he, he was a stockbroker with. Prudential Base and um, I'd started to talk to him a lot in the last 18 months uh, when I went to that investment editor role and he st- people noticed I was the investment editor so people started to call me that weren't, didn't call me before mm. and I've met Jeff a couple of times but then he started to call me a lot um, and for various reasons about things I was working on. He's a great promoter and that was good because we formed a relationship and got to know each other and then he said look I'm leaving probation I want, I'm doing three things. I'm setting up a funds management business. I can't remember what the second one was, and I'm writing a book. Oh, he's going to go on a few boards, that's right, and writing a book. And he says, "I've got no idea how to write a book, but if you'd like to help me on, and I've got the, you know, the blueprint, which is um, Jeff's, I uh, think, uh, Swagger. I can't remember his name. Jack Swagger. Jack Swagger, yeah, which was Mark Wizards. He said, "We'll do it for Australia." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Yeah, every journalist wants to write a book. I'm a reformed journalist. I mean, I'm not a natural one, but um, I've got to that point. Yeah, I'll write a book with you." And about that time I started to look for jobs in funds management. I, I thought journalism, what, what's the future? In the sense that, not because I could see the internet coming or anything, but I looked at people around me and thought, you know, you know I've got a, a, a girlfriend turning into a wife and all those normal things, and we're gonna have kids. How do, you, how do you support yourself? Is there, a, and are, is there other things I'm interested in? You know, so, which there was. I, I was interested in how the stock market worked um, I was really interested in people, interviewing people, and this was coming from a different angle. And so I went for a few interviews, and the, I was lucky enough to get a couple of interviews because I knew people. Uh, Peter Morgan, um, who was at Perpetual at the that time. That would have been a tough interview. Interviewed me, yeah. Well, no, <laughs> it wasn't too bad. It, it was okay, but I didn't get the job. Yeah. I, mean, I think he did it because I knew him. Um, and then I said to Jeff, I got a job offer, one I didn't really want. Um, and I said to Jeff, oh, I've got a job offer from... You know x y and z and he he came back the next day and said we well, can't write a book with someone else with me and then work for someone else he said the business can't afford you but come and work for us mm. and that was it um to be honest we we jeff had a, a reasonable idea of what he was doing but not 100 percent he hadn't been a fund manager for 15 years and i'd never done so we were green and we <laughs> he started wham capital but just a sense of self-belief in a nice kind of way that he could do it and the next Three years was just an enormous learning curve on how the world worked. I mean, the first year working with Jeff, I still saw companies through the lens of a story. Was this a good story? Mm. You know, that would make the front line, you know, front page of the newspaper. And he said to me, "You've got to stop thinking about things and stories. You've got to start thinking about, hey, can you make money out of this investment?" It took a while.
1: Yeah. And what What was it that changed? What can you give me a sense of? What What was the the mindset? Because I think a lot of people hear about stories in the press and they get told about a story or even reading our website, they hear a story about a stock. What's the what's the difference there between thinking about it as a story and making money out
2: of it? Yeah, I mean stories are always fun, right? Especially if you don't have to write them and you're not you know, you know, liable for what you actually print. Yeah. You, you can, so it's all, all that gossip and that and and so they're always fun, but but it, it took a while and the difference is you've got to look at it through the lens of, you know, what is a share price going to go up or down and you've got to make so you've got a whole bunch of factors there's the financials there's the management there's how the market thinks about it what sector it's in it just took a long time for me to get my mind i enjoyed all that stuff but it wasn't you know it was almost like learning a new language do you do you think in your native language or the new language it just takes a while I'm really lucky not only to i have jeff who was incredibly um confident and um a lot of self-belief which just flowed into the organization um, but also about a year after we started, David Paradise from Paradise, um, which which now, you yep. know, huge Australian funds management group came and sat in the same office as us. And there's a couple of younger guys who worked with him, Alan Crozier, who's still around town and David Smith, who now works up in Singapore, they joined him and they were more my age. So I got to hang around them. So I got to hang around Jeff and then they used to invite me to company meetings and so on. They didn't see us as competitors. We all got on. And probably over that two or three years was the real steep learning curve, you know. We were young, we, we didn't really know what failure was about, we're getting inflows, Jeff was growing the business, David was growing his business, and we all kind of worked together in a nice kind of way and we all performed really well over the next two or three years, and that kind of set the foundation yeah. for, m- for my learning curve, getting ready to, you know, take on more senior roles. Yeah,
1: interesting. Um, while we're talking about your book, yeah, you've written well you've three now. Is that correct?
2: Well, yeah. Well, four I've been involved in. There was the Master of the Market, which you've mentioned. There was yep. Master of the Market, Volume Two. Yep. So it was kind of half a book. Then I, I did Master CEOs, um, two thousand eight, and then and then when I left Wilson's, I, when I was leaving, I pitched the idea that you know I could write another book based on my own ideas, trying to answer all the questions that our investors. Um, from Wilson Asset Management, which I think at the time I left was eight or ten thousand investors. Mm. Um, now there's probably sixty, seventy thousand or whatever they've got, and we would got we got over the thirteen, fourteen years. Jeff and I used to go on two road shows a year and go and see them, and we get phone calls. and I tried to answer as many of the questions we got through stories, um, not sitting there going, "This was the question. This is the answer," or, or "This could be the answer." It was it was just like these are the experiences we had and. You know, and that kind of flowed through to the questions we had, so that, that, that was fun. That was hard work writing, writing. doing the interview one with master of the Market, where you picked 13, I think it was 13 of the best investors. From a work point of view that was quite easy, you went and interviewed them, and mm. it was more then about shaping the interview, which a bit more like being a journalist. And same with master CEOs, and, um, but with, master, with um, Bulls, Bears and a Croupier. I sat down and I had to write between 80 and 100,000 words. I had all these ideas in my head. And I had four months they gave me to write it. And I was still working, normal job. So I got to 15,000 words and thought, all well, it's all done. Got all the ideas out. And I thought, well, I failed on the book. Mm. So I had to then turn around and turn it into 90,000 words. Oh, wow. So that was interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I wanted to just, just briefly while you're on Master the Market, you got the chance to interview a bunch of people that you'd selected as you know, market masters, is the one that particularly stood out that you thought was a really great investor? And out of those interviews that you conducted, what did you, like, are there any lessons that you took away yourself that you went, that's what, that was, I've learned something from that process?
2: Yeah, um, there there was, there was a couple of, couple of things that I learned that, that investing is not the only thing when you're running a funds management business. It's key, um, but it's also about being true to who you are and sticking to the to the line that, that that works for you. So one of the standouts was Robert Maple Brown, who was the pioneer, and he had that great line that his parents couldn't believe that someone would pay him to manage their money for them. <laughs> yeah, it was that early. He was in the early seventies, he'd worked in one of the old English investment banks and then he, he went out and set up Maple Brown Abbott. And and he he decided that even though he made money out of gross stocks at various times, he was going to become a value investor and he stuck to that line and grew an enormous business and just the ability, the courage to value invest. I and mean, it's not that easy at times. And, and there's going to be years where you don't, you don't make money and others do very well. We've been through it in right small now, cap yeah. land, you know, the last 12, 18 months, you know, it's there again. But he, 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 And you'd look at businesses and go, oh, they're past their best. There's a lot of value traps. And you'd see Maple Brown Abbott appear with substantials. And sure enough, they'd done their work and they still had belief in the business. And so he was really good. Um, I'm just trying to think who else. I mean, people like Anton Tagliaferro and Peter Morgan, all really good investors. But what they were excellent at was marketing their product. I mean, building big funds management businesses. is, 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 you know, you've got to work on the business as much as in it. Mm. So you've got to get that balance for them. But you you learn bits and pieces from everyone. Um, You know, there was Eric Metinowski, who's retired now and kind of never grew a big business. Uh, Eric was always really generous with his time after that interview. He'd come to Sydney and sit down. He'd go through stocks he was looking at. It was just almost like a tutorial every time how to go about looking at a stock. Um, He was really good, but he, he found it harder to grow a business. He just wasn't as good at the marketing side and convincing people this is the way to go and so on. Um, so they're all pretty good, but they're probably, I mean, obviously, Jeff, I've seen firsthand. David, I'd seen, David Paradise, i have seen yeah. firsthand. Excellent what they do. Learned stuff from them firsthand. But probably, if I look back, it was probably Maple Brown that, that was, he just, long game, stick to what you know, bring yourself to the market. Don't let the market dictate what kind of person you are? That's that's a hard game. Don't try and be something else. And if it's not going your way, it'll come back to you at some stage.
1: Well, why don't we get into how you invest now? Yeah. So you started Centennial's probably three years ago now, is it?
2: Yeah, almost three and a half. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I was listening to a presentation that you gave on the fund, and the thing that struck me um, straight away was that you felt like you could achieve 13 to 15 percent is sort of the range of returns yeah. that you're looking for. That strikes me as a a pretty punchy sort of number. How do you get there? Well,
2: I, and it might be totally unrealistic and we tell this to investors you know, that, that we've got, is that if you go back to the Wilson days, the way we constructed our portfolio, the weightings, the amount of stocks, um, if our strike rate's right, um, in terms of you know, if we get 60% of our calls right, and um, we'll, we'll be able to deliver something like that. And mm-hmm. we always carry cash. Um, so that's how it was formulated. So, that, and, and if you keep to a certain size, obviously if you get big, that that's probably you know difficult to achieve. But it might also be unrealistic in the sense that though those numbers were printed from, you know, and obviously had Jeff looking over them as well. So you know that that also makes a difference because you've got quality person you know generating a lot of, of those returns. But from '98 to 2011, we were able to do gross. Um, before fees of about eighteen and a half percent, okay, and and it was just that portfolio construction, how we went about buying things and so on, that I you know extrapolated. So the thirteen to fifteen should be after fees and costs, and if we keep to a certain size, we're pretty well closed to new investors now. Um, so you know we we, we just thought one fifty once, and then our money and, and a couple of early investors gets to about one seventy, and we think we can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I it might be totally unrealistic in the sense that. In those days, interest rates were higher, economy growth rates were probably a bit higher. Now that comes with negatives, higher rates, inflation, but you know, now rates are lower, um, returns maybe have to be lower. And, and the, the performance of the Australian share market since 2009 when we bottomed in March '09 after the GFC has been abysmal yeah. you know, in any historical sense. It's been bad against places like New Zealand and the US. Um, it's even dragged behind, um, lagged behind European countries. I'm not sure why that is, but you know, we've had a, we've had a terrible 10 years post the GFC in historical terms when you've had a massive clean out like that normally, you pick up now the property market as we know up until 12 months ago was able to achieve returns that are normal in Australia. So uh, I, don't, I don't know quite what it is, but the, the, the share market has been a, a, just a, a monumental disappointment to to all those playing it um there's are all good years but if you take it all together it kind of at the market level four and a half percent or something a year five percent like the average through every cycle has been seven and eight percent mm. and normally when you come out of the bottom you would expect maybe 10 percent because you but it hasn't worked that way and um maybe it's just structure maybe of the share market maybe it's you know it's something to do with where we're at in the cycle and we will get those returns again but it's not this time i i don't know
1: mm. Do you invest? Is the how you invest now? Is that largely how you learned to invest from, from Jeff? Is it effectively yeah. applying the same way? Yeah, I mean, you've got your own
2: strengths, right? So it, it's, it, what's the natural inclina- inclination is not to be bogged down by, even though I said Maple Brown was a great value investor, he, he had the luxury of investing primarily in the top 100, and it was all about making 1% or 2% better than the index. Well, we're not index aware, we, we you know we just start from scratch and we don't follow. So it's it's a bit of a different game, but, but he did say bring yourself to the game and my natural inclination is to buy stocks that are what what is perceived as really cheap. Um, that that's where you start. Now you've got to be a bit more flexible on that. But all the same things that, that Jeff formulated and I learned off him around um, You know, it's got to have a decent balance sheet that's a small cap. You don't want to load it up with debt because small caps can go broke. You know, there's no there's no privileged position in that end of the world. And you know, we've all been in companies that have here one day, you know, never to be seen again. Yeah, Um, that that will happen to you. So get ready for that. Um, The management, you, you know, you've got to judge. That's that's the bit of the magic. How do you judge management? Um, you interview them a lot you read a lot of what they write you see if they stick to what they're saying they're going to do all those things just just like you judge your personal relationships you know you know when people let you down or whatever um, you, you want businesses that have got good cash flow um, that, that you know there's plenty of times where the cash never meets the profit over but you can have one half or whatever but it doesn't work over a long period so you kind of think well what's happening here um, you've got to be careful of roll ups you know in the sense that it's hard to see what's actually happening um, and at the end of the day, you've got to work out what, what, what you're really doing. I'm not a believer in, and I don't think Jeff ever was either, as a share market investor, you're not the owner of the business. I, I, I don't know where people get that from. You know, we, we like to buy shares as if we're the owner, no, if you're, you're not the owner, you're the owner of your funds management business. Your job is to work out whether the share price is going to go up or down. Mm-hmm. You're not running the business, you're not allocating the capital within the business. Um, you're not determining what the good long-term future is. You're looking at a point in time and saying, it's cheap, it's worth more, and the market will, will pay more for it in the future. Yeah. Um, and that can be- it's
1: quite a black and white view on it, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, your job is not to determine how a business should be run. Your job is to say, you know, is this share price over whatever time frame you want to give It could be long-term, I'm not saying that, but or, or it could be shorter-term because things re-rate very quickly. Sometimes whether that stock's going to go up or down and how you play that. So,
1: Hmm. Um, I was having a a bit of a listen back to a podcast that you recorded with uh, my colleague Patrick this time last year, Um, and he asked you about risks. And the first thing that you started off saying was, "Well, why don't we talk about things that aren't risks?" And you said, "Um, "I think that." Politics and geopolitical events around those get overdone as far as um, negative impacts on the market, um, and it often presents a, a buying opportunity. Right, right now, it's, there's quite a bit of weakness in the market, and it seems to be sort of pointing to at least in, partially to trade wars happening in China at the moment. Yeah. Do you think um, the the downward impact that politics and geopolitics is having on markets in Australia, but also globally? Um, is is presenting a buying opportunity.
2: Well, it can do, yeah. Uh, and to, to elaborate on that, there's no doubt that politics can affect markets and even more so can affect, have massive effect on individual stocks around regulation or changes in whatever. I've seen that many times. Overall markets, I think it is exaggerate. The politicisation of markets and uh, why do we get it so wrong so often about, you know, Trump coming in two years ago, the markets were selling off dramatically. As soon as he got in, bang, up they went, you Mm -hmm. know, and it was against all kind of logic and reason. um, And until it kind of unfolded that, you know, that he was going to give tax cuts, he was going to juice up the economy, he was going to spend like a crazy man. And it was all good for stocks and earnings and growth. And so they all bought that. So, um, you know, it's overdone in that sense. Like now we're going to go through this fear and loathing about labor over the next, you know, whatever period is, to, say, to May or maybe November, they're talking about next year, but at some stage where you, you probably think Labor are going to win and there's going to be a lot of negativity about it and people are going to be get very bearish about the political side. Now, it could be work out that way, but the market's ready for it by that stage or it mightn't be that bad. It, it might be, you know, there might be some positives, um, but it tends to get overplayed. Now, the tariffs is an interesting one at the moment. It's definitely slowing China down, but it's probably not permanent. Mm. There's probably going to be a deal done. And it, all it does, as you say, creates some kind of buying opportunity. Even the negatives of tariffs um, between the two of them might open some doors for Australian uh, opportunities. I mean, like I was talking to, and they presented at a conference a week or so ago, Select Harvest, who, who big almond producer and exporter in Australia. The, the, the 80% of the world's almonds come out of California. And a lot, the increasingly the demand for those almonds are being driven by the Chinese as they eat better foods and so on. And so all of a sudden there's a tariff on those almonds. So the Americans are priced out of the global market. The Chinese are desperate for other almonds and sure they're going to come to Australia because they think they can get a quality product here. So that'll be interesting how that plays out. But overall it probably creates an opportunity. China slows. They've got to get it sorted out and you, you know maybe sometime next year and whatever there's a stimulus to get China back going. So. But I think, you know, it's always doom and gloom that there's going to be this, it's going to be a disaster. I mean, look at the banks and the Royal Commission. Short term, it's a disaster. You know, it's slowing growth and so on. But you probably think in the long term, next 10 years, the banks are in a fit again. You know, they've they've pulled back their lending and the excesses and they've got their balance sheets right, which is a good basis for any economy, especially Mm. Australia where the four banks, you know, run... Run, you know, have got so much market share. We saw it in the early '90s, but it was done differently. It wasn't done around regulations. It was done through a recession and high interest rates. So, I think people we'll get too scared or too optimistic about things that don't eventuate. But in the long run, everything kind of—you know—the market looks after itself.
1: Yep. The the flip side to that. So that was that was the risk on the politics that you said you didn't think was a risk. Yeah. The things that you did say were a risk, or the three things that you called out. You said we talk about we used to talk about valuations yeah you talked about the speed of interest rate rises yeah um, and then you said um, if volatility started to pick up you would you'd start to get worried yeah so on valuations valuations actually not too bad right now you know they're not excessive I wouldn't have thought at the market level
2: yeah there's pockets especially in the small cap end um, and we're seeing you know two about if we, we we merge the two the subjects together we've seen two bouts of heightened volatility this year, this calendar year, which wouldn't have been around then Mm -hmm. after a very low period of volatility. What I think that's what that's telling you is that the, I'm not necessarily believing we're in for a bear market. We might be, I I haven't ruled that out, but we're definitely in for a change of what's going to lead the markets. Um, We've had a long period where high growth mainly led by the techs in the US globally um, because you've had this low you know, interest rate, low inflation environment, where the hell can you get growth? Going back to what I said, is it realistic to get returns? Yeah. Where maybe now, it's actually a slightly different scenario. I'm not saying there's a lot of inflation, but there could be a slowdown on the horizon over the next year. We've got the tariffs, we've got rising interest rates in the US, the sugar hit from the US tax cuts, um, depending on if Trump can keep you know, spending money and so on. Probably comes off, and I think the world's looking at a slower... Uh, world economy for a while, and so you, you probably want to get more defensive. So I think the volatility at this stage, and I, if you interview me in a month, I might change my mind, but at this stage it looks like the, the share markets um, taking the volatility um, and out the other side will come a much more defensive kind of um, you know, portfolio structure for most people. Mm. Um, and that might last for 9 to 12 months, which which would be a bit of a change. I think that's what's happening. But volatility de- definitely tells you something's going on. Yep. So be aware of volatility. Interest rates rising too quick, definitely an issue. Because, um, But I think that risk to a degree, let's see if they can control it, but the risk around interest rates is probably not as great as it used to be because the Federal Reserve now just tells you so much about what they're thinking. It's all but, in the market. Yeah, and if we do get the slowdown, I mean, if you look at some of the, the forecasts about uh, US GDP, might have peaked in the second quarter of this year, 4, 4.2 or 3, whatever it was, going to 3.5, then 3. I mean, people like Goldman Sachs or groups like Goldman Sachs have got it going to 1.9 in the fourth quarter of next year. That's a genuine slowdown. I mean, it's not a recession, but it's a slowdown. So maybe you don't get as many interest rate increases. That could be good for the market. Yep. You know, they could have adjusted around valuations and slow down. And all of a sudden you think, well, rates are going to stay low, therefore valuations aren't too bad again. Off we but go again.
1: And they've taken the opportunity to get rates up while the, while the, the growth yeah. rate was strong. Now that's a good scenario.
2: Yep. A bad scenario is that they lift rates, growth goes on again for a bit longer, and then they've got to jack it up to really pull it down hard. And that's probably where you get a bear market, I think. Yeah. So we'll see how that unfolds.
1: Talking specifically around um, Australian market, we were talking prior to the interview that, you know, there's been quite a, a sell-off in that part of the market, which is obviously, well, maybe not obviously to our viewers, but that's a part of the market that you like to go and find yeah. ideas in. Yeah. What have you learned about what changed in the small cap? What, what got whacked, what survived, and, and what opportunities has it thrown up for you?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, gray hair, um, lucky I haven't got too much gray hair, <laughs> but I, I fit the, the age category of a gray hair person. Uh, you always think that you kind of seen it before, um, you know, that small caps outperform and you can sit around at lunch or the morning meeting and say, well, we all know they're not going to outperform forever because that's just that the history tells us. That. The moment you go through a correction and, and we're talking about over September, October, the small ordinaries fell by 11%. So some stocks fell by 25. You still feel terrible. Mm. Like it, you're, never, you're never ready for it because uh, it happens really quickly. And, you know, you, you normally long the market and then all of a sudden... You know, you can't, can't be short sure because your game is investing. Um, what have I learnt? Uh, we are seeing two things I think happening in the Australian market. And maybe a lot of it's already played out. You're getting the PE contraction of those high PE stocks, whether they be in techs, whether they be in um, financial platforms that we saw with the net wealths and the hubs and that. And they're all still operating very well. There's no problems with the businesses. Uh, Whether it be in uh, some global growth stories, um, you know, China facing stocks, the premiums are coming out of them fairly quickly and continue to do so. Um, And that's probably a good thing. So stay away from them for the moment. It's not completely done. The other thing is that it seems like the Australian consumer is probably not as healthy as they were even three or four months ago. We'll see with the numbers, but we've seen a lot of retailers come out. We've seen car sales fall off an edge of a cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, for seven months now, house, housing slowed down. And and even more just general day le- uh, level kind of consumption products are probably now starting to feel the pinch a bit. Um, and that, that to me comes around from the credit tightening from the banks out of the Royal Commission, which we talked about earlier. So you, you've got to get... Under that scenario, probably a bit more defensive. If you can, companies that are, have, even though they have, mightn't have a lot of growth, but they they can maintain a certain level of earnings while things slow down. Now it was interesting. I might have that wrong because the Reserve Bank came out yesterday. They're and pretty said, rosy, they're weren't they? Pretty rosy, yeah. And they say a lot more than me. I mean, there, there might be very good reasons, and it could still be all around this spend on infrastructure, capex, mining's okay again. Um, but I think. A lot of small cap companies are internally focused on Australia and depend on the consumer. So I don't know how much the share market will get out of it. My bet is you've just got to be a bit defensive for a while. Uh, look, if you turn around and there's, there's some kind of change, um, you know, that the banks start lending again because they've been through, or, you know, they will lend again at a higher rate. I mean, credit grows 2 3% you know, before 2007, it was 13% unsustainable. Um, mm. that maybe four or five, 6% is right again, once, but that could be a year away. China turns around and says, look, we've slowed our economy down the tariff. Some stage next year, big stimulus package like they did out of the GFC. That could get things going again. But for the moment, it, to me, it looks like all slowing down for most sectors, both external and internally. So, and I think that's that's the market getting the wobbles. Yeah. That that was that was probably the first step in it. And the wobble back in February was probably a forerunner to that where people were just a bit too long. They didn't know what was coming, but everyone had put the same bets on, everyone was pouring into those ETFs. You couldn't have enough tech and you know, it took about eight or nine months where things started to play out. Well maybe things are getting a bit slower, you know, the next twelve months not as rosy as the last twelve months. Maybe EPS growth has reached a peak globally. For the moment, not disastrous, but you know, time for a change.
1: So let's let's use that as a starting point because I'm going to hit you for an idea. Yeah. Um, Your process is you want um, you want to see a reasonable growth rate relative to the PE. Yeah. Um, And you also like to see a catalyst for the stock to re-rate. So have you got an idea that fits that defensive sort of mindset that you've, just, um, that you've just outlined there that would fall into the centennial process?
2: Yeah, like a couple of ideas we've had recently in the small cap area. Um, uh, revolve around a little bit about industries that are doing re- quite well regardless of the domestic economy. So, for example, one that people don't like to go near and, and you know, we could be sitting here in 12 months saying, why the hell do we, is, is Tassel. So Tassel's on its lowest kind of multiple for a long time. And um, there's good reasons for that. Their returns are down on what they've... I mean, they're growing, but, but their returns on their investment are down. Their return on invested capital is lower. So it takes three years to get, you know, from the investment of starting the fish to you harvest it and sell it. So they've grown quite a bit in terms of... Um, but supply from now on is constrained. There's not many places in Australia you can grow salmon, and and you take on extra risk every time you go to a new area. Yeah. You know, if you go further offshore, then um, you've got aquacultural risk. Fish are very sensitive to their environment and growth rates and so on. And that that's been something they've had to deal with over the years, this disease and you know. But so let's let's get to the positive side. Demand for salmon in Australia growing at ten or eleven percent a year. Um, You've got a dollar that's weak, which means the threat of offshore fish coming in and you had to freeze them, they're not as good. If, if there's a price shelter there because it's more and more expensive for both retail and wholesale to buy offshore. And for the moment, the tassel guys are, and, and their, their production's really good at the moment and any of their big fish they can export offshore. And there's big demand in Asia for quality salmon. They all love Australian products because there's one thing that, know it's clean. Mm. And they'll, they'll buy that. So I think, you know, they, they, it's, it's a nice sweet spot for them at the moment. So, you know, salmon is a food, as we know, and so that's normally resilient to economies. It's a high growth area because we think it's healthy, it tastes quite good, and you've got a dollar helping it. So let's just hope the aquaculture risk is right. And so the returns will start to... You know improve again because the investment was made so i like that yeah um so you know that's quite good um on small end there's a little company called midway that we like and they do wood chips and they ship most of them up into asia again so the dollar's helping them and the dynamic that's changed there has been that china was a was a net exporter of hard wood chips so there's you know all different categories of wood chips around the world that go into different products Um, they've become a net importer and so it's turned the dynamics around. So we used to send all our wood chips, hard wood chips that come out of Victoria, Tasmania, southern parts of WA, up into Japan. And they were really our only customer. And so a weak dollar was really good. You, you beat the South Africans and the Chileans and everyone else. Um, and, but now they've had their own problems. And now China is about 80% of the acquisitions now. So there's price, um, price is going up. They've got demand for product. The thing's not that expensive. It's a cyclical business. The dollar rises, China you know, slows down or whatever. You don't want to be in wood chips. Yeah. Um, but for the moment, there's a nice sweet spot there. And I think they're running their own course regardless of the economy. So there's a couple of ideas. Let's Very see how good. they work. Both reasonably priced for this time in the cycle. And the next two years for both those stocks, um, if they can execute, should be you should see earnings grow quite nicely. Very good. But, but whenever you ask me about one or two stocks, the strike rate's pretty low. That's, okay. that's why we built portfolios.
1: That's right. Disclaimer on that one. All right, so you've got, you've got to be bullish. Last question. Mm. Can you tell me a lesson that you learnt the hard way? A story where something went wrong and you picked up a lesson along the way um, that you still think made, made you a better investor or something that you remember, you know, that was a bit of a tough lesson to learn?
2: Yeah, and, and I'm a believer that you never learn from your mistakes. You keep just making them. <laughs>
1: You know, it's um, one of your behavioural biases that you make the same yeah, mistakes over again.
2: So, so you've got to try and put some external uh, rigour around um, those mistakes. And so one of the things is a stop loss, right? You know, as I said before, a strike rate of 60% correct calls is just correct in the sense that they go up if you're long and go down if you're short. Um, not, not if they outperform the market, I'm just talking about absolute returns, which we look at. If you're, if you're hitting 70% of your calls right, it's too high you sell the fund because mm-hmm. you'll mean reverse if you're only 50 percent then you've got to have a good look at what you're doing wrong it should be about the 60 percent so how do you stop yourself getting wrong in a meaningful way you put stop losses in um, and, and we try and do 10 percent but sometimes we don't get that I mean you get bad news from a company that you've missed and it's you know opens 30 percent down from the next trade so sometimes unrealistic and sometimes you try and make sure your liquidity is okay, but sometimes liquidity dries up, takes a bit longer to get out. But that that's just trying to work out what, you know, that's just trying to put something around to stop you. Now, let's get to the mistake. The mistake is always thinking you're right and the market's wrong.
1: Um,
2: there was a little company called Signature Brands that, that was a tiny little company and all the red flags were there in the world. Um, but i thought i had a fairly good grip on what they were trying to do and better than the market and the reason for that was that i my wife had owned a few coffee shops and i kind of knew the dynamics of a coffee shop believe it or not what sells and what the margin was only because i would worked in there and they had they had their main business was juices like a, a, a competitor to boost which we'd all know in australia mm. and they did you know i thought well this is a good business blah 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 but they were paying too much rent this was wiping the floor with them and I just, you know, I was doing silly things like going and buying three juices a day to try and not sell, you know, <laughs> to help the share price. You know you're delusional on this stage. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a nationwide business, but it keeps happening. You, you get on a stock and you think, yeah, I think I'm right.
1: You extrapolate your own knowledge.
2: Yeah. The well, sometimes your own knowledge, sometimes it's just, you're silly. You think you know something and you don't. There might be judgment on the management You're saying, no, they're good guys and they'll get through and invariably you just you just get it wrong and you end up losing 40 50 percent of your money instead of the 10 to 15 or whatever you can get out of it and and it's always those biases that you have that you you've got to you've got to have conviction but you've got to somehow um, just mix it with what the outside world's telling you you can't be stubborn you can be convicted but you can't be stubborn so I, I sometimes float into the stubborn area, and you know it's it's I just can't get out of it, and um, you know because all fund managers got egos, so, you know like everyone, but normally bigger than most because they think that yeah, you know, fund managers. The other thing that I learned from Jeff was fund managers like to be right. That's not a good position to start. Fund managers should say I like to make a return, not I'm right, because sometimes you'll make a better return if you go against the view that you're right. Like I was saying, if I sold that stock instead of holding onto it, our returns would have been better. You know, not sticking to the idea that I'm right and they're wrong.
1: I'm prove it wrong. So you've just
2: got to get that balance, you know. And um, I think that's the lesson I keep learning um, time and time again. And you know, you go okay for six months because you stay away from it and then you find another stock with you.
1: Tell me just a very quick technical question to finish up on. That 10% stop loss. Yeah. is that from the entry price or does that follow you along
2: no it's normally around the entry price um, when stock when you get it right stock goes up the way you kind of mitigate that is that you um, you put valuations around a stock obviously that's that's what we spend most of our time doing valuing stocks and and you try and stick to another mistake you can make is that by the time you get to your valuation point you're so happy that it's gone up and you, you know you've made money, and you're right, and you're feeling good about it. Then it's really hard to say, well, I'm leaving this story because it's been so kind to us. Mm. Um, and sometimes there's a reason to stay. On fundamental analysis, that things are a lot, lot better than what we thought, you know, when we started. And that that happens quite regularly. And that's the that's the that's the beauty of equities and you know companies and the ability of people to generate ideas and to grow. But more often than not. The valuation is probably what it was before give or take a little bit and so you've got to try and exit there and so i'll find that a lot of the time i'm an early seller um i'm not i'm a good seller good seller. i don't necessarily uh, i'm not as good a buyer at times but um, it's yeah the the stop loss is down here um but mentally you kind of you know, you got valuations and that kind of becomes a proxy for a stock loss as you go along. Yep. It could be three years where you're in stock or it could be two months. But so that's you kind of got to think about it that I think that way. But that doesn't mean that if you're managing a lot of money, you, you do exactly what I do. You know, you you're a different personality, you'll have different things that you can bring to the market. Some people are just fabulous growth investors. They see things for years ahead. No, I can't do that. Um, other people are just great. As I said, Maple Brown, he'd buy things. you think, well, that's a value trap. But he'd do his work and he'd sort it out and have his team do it. And so you just got to bring what you're best at. And the market, you know, it's not like Trump's America. It welcomes everyone who wants to have a go. It'll punish you, but it, it allows whatever background you come from, there's an opportunity for you to do if you're good at a certain area. Some people are great at ARBs between things. Some people are great at takeovers. Some people are great growth investors. Some people are great value investors. You know, they're all got different characteristics, and the market's big enough and strong enough to allow everyone to play. Um, it's when you stray off that that I think you get into trouble.
1: Great. Well, Matthew, um, at a personal level, thank you for all of your involvement with Lifewire and uh, and <laughs> thanks, and getting getting involved, and it's been great to sit down and talk a bit about how you invest today.
2: I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, that's it for another week of The Rules of Investing. I hope you enjoyed the show. We've got a bunch of great interviews coming up over the next month or so, including Andrew Clifford from Platinum Asset Management, Tim Hillier from Alan Gray, some of the fund managers from Future Generation, and a Christmas special episode where I'll be getting one of our past guests to interview me. In the meantime, please subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at Livewire Markets and visit our website, livewiremarkets.com. And as always, thanks for listening.